Well, it is exciting that this is our annual celebration weekend, and there are so many things for us to reflect on and, and to be grateful to God for what He has done in our midst. And uh, we've celebrated some of those already. Another one that just uh, kind of amps me up, especially as I look out and I see that several of you are here, is that it's been over this last year. In fact, right now we're in the process of welcoming in several new members. And if you just look on the screen, you can see uh, these are some of the folks who have joined Pathway over the course of this last year, and there's a lot there to celebrate, and uh, we're excited about those who are wanting to identify more and more. Membership is not something that people do in our world much anymore. We're, we're not wanting to commit to anything, but, but here we have just loads of people who have wanted to say, I want to stand together with what Pathway is and what uh, God is doing in this place. So we're super excited about that as we welcome them in and as uh, we move our way into our our time of, of celebrating what God has done as well as what he, we trust him to do for the future as we set those things in place through our uh, meeting that is, that is Sunday, that is uh, coming right up and we're going to enjoy together. So it's a pleasure to welcome those of you as I look out who we see who are new members um, right now just coming on in and uh, welcome to you. Welcome to those of you who are just here in the room that aren't new members, you've been around a long time or maybe you're not a member and uh, you're thinking, hey, that's a step that I ought to take as well. Or maybe you're just tuning in online or maybe in our classic venue or on our moon campus however you are finding this and wherever you're finding it thanks for being a part of pathway in the things that god is doing it is certainly very exciting and i certainly believe that to be true and i hope you do also well, as we dig into, as we get started into that which God, I believe, is, is brought into our path for today, a couple of things to get us started. I'm sure that you have seen those motorized shopping carts that they have in the big box stores that help people get around. You know what I'm talking about. You've probably even had to dodge one or two in the aisle from time to time. But have you ever had to dodge one of those on the road? I mean, like on the highway? Police in Indiana were called to a scene because people were reporting that there was somebody who was driving one of those motorized shopping carts, one of those motorized scooters, on the highway, on one of the state highways. The speed limit's like 55 miles an hour, and uh, there's this motorized shopping cart on it, or at least that was the report. So the cops went, and they, they went to the spot where this was supposed to be, and sure enough, there was this guy on this motorized shopping cart, and uh, he was going northbound on the southbound lanes, and he was swerving all over the place, and they saw that on the back it said, property of Walmart. <laughs> and so, so the cop car pulled him over, you know, the lights and the siren. Wouldn't you love to see the dash cam video on that one, pulling over this motorized shopping cart? I would have loved to have seen that. Well, they ended up arresting this guy for driving, for motor scooting, under the influence. Not a big surprise to, to hear that, is it? Well, when you, when you see things or learn about things that are being done under the influence, you know that there's something kind of out of the ordinary that's happening, not just under the influence of alcohol. There are other things that we are oftentimes under the influence of as well. How about the person who's under the influence of a new love? Right? That'll cause people to do all sorts of things. That's caused many a young man to start cooking and, and cleaning and, and showering. There are, there are any of a number of things. Well, well today what we're going to do is we are going to be taking a look at something about what all of us are under the influence of. 
something else outside of what we've already been talking about, probably outside of things that you have been thinking about, but something very important for us to consider. You see, but here's the thing. We don't like being under the influence of anything, do we? We don't like being under the influence because to do so means that there's an influence over us. And we don't like influences over us because it feels like it's controlling us. It feels like we're losing some of our autonomy. It feels like we're being pigeonholed somehow into this category where now we are subservient to something else. But the fact of the matter is there are all sorts of things in our world today where we live under the influence of those things. And one of those is on the Apostle Paul's mind as he writes, Romans chapter 7. And I'd invite you to go ahead and open up those scripture journals to Romans chapter 7. Grab a Bible, the Bible that you brought, and the outline maybe from the Pathway Notes or however you're consuming this, but, but jot down these notes either in the Pathway Notes version or in your scripture journal. Um, however it is going to assist you to access this, please do so. All along in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul has been trying to help his readers, and we've seen this, and if you've been with us, you've seen it too, to help them get a kind of the big picture on life and where we are and what the influences are that we're under and what the circumstances are of the life that we live and, and where we are and, and how we might move our way forward into a life that is successful, at least in terms of what God is calling us to do. And Paul keeps bringing this again and again and again to help us to understand where we belong and what God has done for us and, and the blessing and the benefit that we have because of the cross and because of Jesus' resurrection and victory over death that brings ultimately to us a victory that we can experience in our own life. And he, he keeps bringing that again and again and again. And certainly in chapter 7, he has something to say to us about that very thing. But here's the thing. Not everything that is an influence over us is positive. There's certainly influences that we are under that are negative influences as well that can leave us feeling enslaved and actually being enslaved. And chapter 7 is all about helping us to see and understand those differences so that we might be able to process them so that we wouldn't be unduly influenced in one direction when the possibility exists that we can be influenced positively in the other direction. Paul wants us to have eyes wide open to understand this. And so he is going to lay out for us this thing, these things that we are potentially under the influence of so that we'll see them. And there are a few of them that he highlights here that we want to take a look at and hopefully that are going to make, help us make progress as we see what he has to say. So let's jump into them. First of all, he says that we are under the influence of the new life. Point number one, the new life is something we're under the influence of. For a couple of chapters now, Paul has been driving home the point that sin is a real issue and that all of us face the temptation of that sin every single day. Every one of us, every single day. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, we have the ability to overcome that temptation. That's what he's been sharing with us. He's been talking about the fact that, that sin has died and that we were baptized with Christ into death and that our sin went along with that, giving us the opportunity for victory over that sin instead of being unduly influenced underneath that sin. Last week he talked about, he gave us the picture of a slave. If you're with us, I hope you remember this, this, this idea that we're a slave to something. It's just a question of what are we giving ourselves over to. And he pointed out the fact that we can choose to be slaves of righteousness rather than being slaves of 
sin. And if you weren't with us last week, please go back and listen to that. It helps to set the tone for where we are today. Now, as we come to chapter 7, Paul still has that same battle on his mind. Even though he dealt with it pretty completely last week, he still has that idea on his mind. And the reason is because we're in a nasty battle with sin. And sin doesn't say, okay, I get it, yeah, you beat me, and so I'm out of here. I'll never show up ever again. That's not the attitude of sin. That's not the mindset of Satan as he seeks to continue to bring it into our midst and as we simply live our way out and through the fact that we have this sin nature. We'll talk more about that later. It's a nasty enemy, but now he turns to another picture, another illustration to make his point. He said it here one way last week. Now he says, I still need to drive this home a little bit more, so let me turn to another sort of illustration. And in this case, what we're going to see here in a moment is that he uses the illustration of marriage. We're going to see how he does that, but hold on to that thought for one second. First of all, let's see how he kicks off this whole chapter, all right? Chapter 7 and verse 1, if you look at it, it says this, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Here he's kind of stating the obvious for us. He's saying as long as you live, these things influence you, but as soon as you die, there are certain things, the influence is going to be gone. I mean, that only makes sense, right? I mean, once you're dead, you can stop worrying about how you're going to pay the bills. Doesn't matter anymore. Once you're dead, you'll never have to listen to any more political advertisements on television as you come near to an elect, right? You, you, you're all know, yeah, you've been experiencing that. Once you're dead, you're never going to be able to see the Pirates win a World Series, which, of course, isn't something that you're at risk of while you're alive either, um, so it seems, right? But uh, that's what he's kind of getting at. What Paul says is that the, the law is no longer an issue for a person once they're dead, once they're gone. And that only makes, he's kind of stating the obvious and putting it that way. Then he talks about this idea of what that, or how that ought to influence us. Now, and he relates it to marriage. Now, Paul's not saying that to die is the same as to get married, right? That's not what he's saying. That would be a wrong interpretation of what this passage has to say. Here is what he is saying, verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Paul's just saying, he's using an illustration of something that would have been abundantly plain to his audience. This idea of the the fact that the marriage relationship changes if the person dies, and that changes the circumstance for the one who still lives. That was a very obvious principle for them. And he's saying, let me use this obvious principle to help you understand something that might not be quite as clear to you. And so that's why he is using it in this way. And he gets to that point as he goes on. Verse 4, Likewise, my brother, now this is the application of basically the the illustration he's just giving us. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. 
But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul is saying there has been a death of a husband that releases the wife to remarry another to illustrate that there has been a death to the authority of the law, understanding that we are no longer obligated to that law, but instead to a different authority, a different arrangement. In this case, Jesus Christ. He's saying, you understand that in marriage. Well, it works the same way in relationship to the law. Once you've died to the law, then you're free to engage with somebody else, some other priority system, which is Jesus, is what he's saying. Now, while I'm not suggesting that you should be happy about the death of a husband, you should be happy about the death of the law. And that's what he wants us to understand, because it brings new life. The good news is that the power of the law has been broken through the death and the new life of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus. It changes everything. It transforms because no longer are you a slave to death, but because death has been defeated. And so now you are a slave. You're under the influence of the new life that comes through Jesus, that comes through the resurrection. That's what he's trying to point out to us. It releases everyone from the condemnation of the law because of the freedom that can be found in Jesus. That's the good news that he's wanting to help us to understand as he kicks this off. And he does with that good news is how he starts this chapter, that we're under the influence of the new life. But that's not all. He says, there's something more, and I really need to get down to the brass tacks of this, he says. And so he goes on to fill in more details about the influence of the second thing, which is the old law. We're under the influence of the new life, yes, but also under the influence of the old law. Now, in those opening verses we've already looked at, Paul pretty quickly dismissed the law to get to his point. And he knows that he went over it very quickly to kind of put that exclamation point right at the beginning of the chapter. Now he rewinds. Now he goes back and he says, let me pick up some of the things I've sort of glossed over so that we're sure to understand the fullness of what's involved here. He wants them to be sure that they grasp the fact that it goes deeper than just the simplicity of what he has already said. A few different pieces here to the influence of the old law that he highlights. And the first is that the old law reveals sin. It reveals sin. This is something that it does. As Paul did a couple times in chapter 6, here in verse 7, he's going to offer a clarification. Remember we talked about, if you were with us, we talked about how Paul would make some statement and then he'd be concerned that somebody was going to twist that out of its context and make it say something that it doesn't, giving them a license to sin. Where Here, here he's got that same thing on his mind. In fact, we're going to see it a couple of times in this chapter where he, he throws out a clarification and then he, he answers his own question. So here he has just said that the law had a hand in the rise of sinful passions. So he says that could be misunderstood. So he goes on to say, what then shall we say, verse 7, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You might recognize that you shall not covet as being one of the Ten Commandments. It's actually the last of the Ten Commandments, the Tenth. And it really got Paul's attention, and this is the one that convicted him. And the reason is because it's, it's actually very different from the Nine Commandments that precede it. The Nine Commandments that go before it have a, a certain thing in common that's different from the Tenth. The, the Nine that go before it actually all have to do with outward actions. 
All right? So it tells us that you should honor your father and mother. It tells us you should not steal. It tells us you should not lie. It tells us you should not take the name of the Lord in vain. They're all outward actions. You shall not covet is different. And you can hear it. You understand this. Because that's talking about an attitude of the heart. It's talking about something that's going on inside of us instead of that which we're just acting out. Now remember that Paul was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees prided themselves on their ability to keep the law. And so what the Pharisees would do, and many of the Jews, is they would walk around believing that there's no, there's no accusation against them because they've kept all of these things. They've lived up to all of these things, and so they're feeling pretty proud about themselves and what they have been able to accomplish because they thought, well, I'm not guilty of any of these things. And this is a trap that you and I can fall into also because the chances are you haven't murdered anybody recently, right? And that's one of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well with these, these Ten Commandments. And uh, that's sort of how they took it on. That's kind of how we oftentimes see ourselves as well. You might say, well, and I also honor my parents, and that's great. We won't ask for their input right now. But um, that's something else where you might think that you've got this under control. But coveting is different. It's not quite as obvious, at least not to other people, because they can't see you acting that out necessarily. But when Paul was willing to be honest and transparent, he says, I knew that I was guilty of coveting. I knew that that was something that was present in my life, and it took me over. I recognized that, not just the coveting took him over, he recognized that that was already going on, it had already taken him over, but now he is recognizing with this angst in his own spirit, in his own soul, seeing how much that was something that he was guilty of doing. He knew he was guilty. He knew he couldn't give himself a passing grade on that any longer. The old law was influencing him, and he's recognizing that that's the case. It revealed his sin, and the truth is the old law reveals ours as well. Even if we just limit ourselves to an examination of the Ten Commandments, and there are other laws that we could take a look at also, but even if we just limit ourselves right there to how well we've lived up to the first nine of those Ten Commandments, it would also reveal our sin because nobody has kept all of those. In fact, you haven't even kept most of those along the way. And when we get to the tenth, which is coveting, we should be as convicted as Paul is because coveting is broad-ranging. Coveting is not just me saying, man, I really love that Beamer that you drive. I wish I had one too. It's more than that. In fact, it's much more than that. What coveting is, is it's doing a, a, a negative work in our heart because what coveting says is that I'm actually dissatisfied with God. I'm dissatisfied with what He's provided for me. I'm dissatisfied with the things that He's allowed me to have. And so whenever we feel that sort of disconnect from what we would desire, it's not just I feel bad for myself. It's that I'm actually living out an accusation against who God is is. We need to see it for what it is. Covenanting is a discontent with where you are, what God has given you. You can see it wherever there is envy. you wanting what somebody else has, where there is self-pity, where you're not happy with what's going on inside because there's something else that you see around you that causes you to, to pity yourself. You're looking at yourself negatively as compared to somebody else. Or wherever there's grumbling, the same thing is the case. It's seen wherever there's a discontent content with your appearance or with your wealth 
wherever there's a discontent with your popularity or the number of Insta followers that you've got. Wherever that might happen to be, it can be in any sort of context where it rears its head. In fact, coveting that 10th commandment is typically broken whenever you break any of the others. Francis Schaeffer said this. He said, any time that we break one of the other commandments of God, it means that we have already broken this commandment in coveting. That's because when you steal, what you're doing is that you are demonstrating that you're dissatisfied with the things that you already have, and so you are going to take this step to fulfill your life in a greater way, to provide for yourself something that God hasn't provided for you, something that hasn't been a part of your experience. Or when you lie, what you're doing is you're demonstrating a discontent with the things that you have, the things that are true about you, so you're trying to manipulate the circumstances around you, the thoughts of people about you who are in your context, so that you might be seen differently than what you are. So coveting is always present, or virtually always present, wherever there's really almost any other sin at all. And that's what Paul has recognized even for himself here. And he says he recognizes that the old law has revealed this sin in him. And just as it resides in him and it rocks him to his core because he recognizes this is my core, it should rock us in the same way. Because when we sin, we can know that what we are doing is we're expressing some sort of dissatisfaction with the life that we have, and we want it different. We want something more. We want something different than what it's been, and so we're actually making an accusation against God when we enter into sin. But the old law goes further still in the influence of the old law, and not just that it reveals sin, it also arouses sin. It arouses sin. Now, you would naturally think that this is hmm, the law stirring up sin, but you wouldn't think that this is something that Paul would say or that the law would act in that sort of way to actually arouse sin. You think, that, well, it's, it's telling you what you ought to do, how you ought to live. How is it possible that it actually arouses sin? But that's what Paul says. Verse 8, if you look at it, it says, but sin seizing on opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The law did. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Paul's not saying that there wasn't any sin in him before he came to understand the law, but he is saying that it advanced it, and here's how. Every law of God is a statement of his desire about how he would have us to live, how he would have us to interact with one another, how he would have us to interact with him. Every statement of God, every law of God, it's for our benefit. However, we're just as likely to see it as an infringement on our control, to see it in, in, as an infringement on our autonomy. So it's very natural for people to desire control. All of us fall into that trap and to rebel against the very thing that we're being called to do, the very law of God that he's given us to follow after. And in that way, the law arouses sin because we know here's what God's desire would be, but I don't want to be under control and so I want to do my own thing. So in that way, the law arouses sin. 
I remember when one of our girls was very young, we're talking like the toddler stage, she was playing in the kitchen and uh, the oven was, the oven door was very hot because we're baking something in there and she wasn't playing near the oven and she wasn't touching the oven door or anything like that, but just sort of out of an abundance of caution, we said to her, now honey, whatever you do, please do not touch the oven door. You can get hurt if you do that. And, and she wasn't touching the door. She wasn't anywhere near it. She had no interest in the, in the oven door. But the moment that we said, don't do it, it was like a, a, a switch flipped just in that moment. And all of a sudden, the only thing she wanted to do was to touch the oven door. Just because it had been forbidden for her to do that, that is the thing that spurred her on in her desire. Well, a lot of us are exactly like that. We can be spiritual toddlers in that sort of sense. As soon as there is something that is forbidden, we want that thing that much more. And in that way, and because of our control issues, the old law influences us and it arouses sin in us. When we recognize this is something you should not do, God desires you would not do that, it's like, Hmm, there must be something fun about that. Kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden. Just don't eat from the... Oh, that must be really delicious fruit. All of a sudden, that's what we want. It arouses sin to know what it is that God would actually desire that we would not do. Seems backwards, but it's where we are. Then also, when it comes to the old law, it brings death. This is the last of these things. This is another thing that you wouldn't expect Paul to say, that the law actually brings death. You would think it's trying to provide a blessing, but look again here. Verse 10, this is what he says. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. It's as plain as he could say it. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. There's another example of him answering his own question. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the sense in which the law brings death is that for so many they're counting on it to bring life. They're resting in the law and what they think that it can do because they they keep it, they're going to earn God's favor by doing so, that they get themselves stuck in this position where they're leaning on the wrong thing and because they're looking to the law to provide something that the law can't provide, but they're taking confidence and courage in the fact that that they've walked down those steps and believe that it can. That's the very thing that blinds them and the very thing that sets them up ultimately for death because they're refusing the thing that would bring life. He's told us this before, and here he's just highlighting that one more time. So, Paul makes it very clear that we are under the influence of the old law. And then lastly, he also says that we're finally under the influence of the sin nature. The sin nature. A few weeks ago, we talked about the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden and how his sin has been extended to all of us. And we're all stuck in this sinful condition, not that we would have done any better than he did, but we're in this position where we have this sin nature. It is something that we are born with. It is automatically something that is ours. You don't need to teach anybody to go and sin because we already are experts at that because it is something that is inside of us. It is a part of our sin nature. It's there automatically. It doesn't go away. You have it. I have it. Paul is talking about how he quite certainly knows that he has it. 
In fact, he points this out as he goes on. See if you can, can spot him talking about the sin nature in the presence of. We're going to read most of the rest of the chapter here and uh, see if you can pick up on it. Verse 14 is where we'll start. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I think that would be a great golfer's verse. You know, out there on the course, you hit your shots. I do the thing I didn't want to do, and I don't do the thing that I hate. I've felt that way many times on the golf course. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. You might even say it's a part of your nature. He goes on, For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, summary, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of God sin. You can just hear the struggle that is going on inside of Paul. He has the desire to do the right thing and honor God with his life, but the influence of the sin nature just keeps rearing its head. And I feel the same way. Times when it's like, I know the thing that I want to do, but somehow it doesn't get done, and I know the thing that I certainly don't want to do. And all of a sudden, I find myself there in that circumstance and in that situation. And when that's what transpires in our lives, it can really get discouraging. And maybe you've been there, and maybe you are there, recognizing, why can't I just do the thing that I know that I, in my mind I would desire to do? Why do I get stuck here? And it can just be very discouraging, and, and it can be something that leads us to the place of just kind of throwing up our hands and saying, well, I, I, I'm going to be stuck with this sin nature, and I'm going to fall into the sin, so I'm just going to have to live discouraged and dejected and defeated. Or you might throw up your hands and say, well, apparently I can't beat this, so I may as well just join it and just allow ourselves to go into that sin even more so. So is that what we should do? Well, of course not. That's like a hard no. I've got something better for you. In fact, I want to give you, as we kind of try to wrap up what Paul is trying to say in all of this, let me give you a couple of takeaways, right? Jot these down. First is this. You can't defeat sin altogether, but you have a fighting chance in every battle. You can't defeat sin altogether, but you have a fighting chance in every battle. When Paul says that he does the thing he doesn't want to do and vice versa, he doesn't mean every time. Paul has many, many circumstances where he can point to victory over sin. 
There are places in the Scripture where we could go and point that out. He's victorious a lot. Remember, this is the guy who's been telling us just a chapter ago that, that the power of sin has been broken and has been defeated because of the power of Christ and because of the resurrection. We now have a new life. We don't need to be slaves to that sin any longer. And he's living his life as a, as a model and as an example of that, yet he's here discouraged about the fact that the sin rises up. But not always. He knows that we've got a fighting chance in every circumstance. Every time temptation comes your way, you've got the opportunity to defeat it. It's not that you can keep temptation from coming. It's not either that you'll probably ever get to the place where you're able to completely overcome sin, that you're not going to give in to it. But you've certainly got a fighting chance because it's already been defeated by the blood of Jesus and by Jesus' glorious resurrection. And in a unique sort of way, Paul's discouragement here that he's speaking to is, is a positive sign. Imagine that if he wasn't troubled by the sin that he saw in his life. Imagine if it's like, yeah, I fell into that sin. <laughs> That's too bad. I might do better next time, or I might not. Whatever. No big deal. What it would indicate is that there's been no change of heart and mind that's actually transpired in his, in his spirit and in his soul. The fact that he is bothered is indicating the fact that he's being pulled in a different direction. And you can take encouragement there also. Because you're never going to completely overcome sin or overcome the temptation to sin. The sin nature is present within you. But as you wrestle with it, as you find yourself in a circumstance where it bothers you that you've given in or that you're even being pulled in that direction, it's an indication that your heart has a different master than the sin. And you can and should be encouraged by that. The second takeaway I would give you is this. Your inability to defeat sin keeps you aware of your need for the one who has. Your inability to defeat sin keeps you aware of the need, of your need for the one who has. If Paul or you or I were just walking around confident in our own ability to defeat sin, what that would indicate is that we're relying on ourselves to be our own Savior. And that's when we'd really be in a world of hurt because none of us can accomplish that on our own. None of us at all. Instead, when we, don't, when we know we don't have the ability to do away with our own sin, what that's going to lead us to is to lean into the one who's already defeated, us, defeated it. The fact that we recognize that we can't is going to be the thing that keeps us soft and tender drawn after the one who can and fall into his grace that changes everything. Look, there's no denying that we're under the influence of sin, and until we pass from this earth or until Jesus comes back, we're going to keep doing battle with it. It's something that's with us. It is something that will be there. It is not, it is not, 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 not an excuse to just give in to it. It's not a reason to not feel so bad when it comes up. After all, I've got a sin nature. It's going to happen. No real big deal. The grace of God, thankfully, is there. If you take on that attitude, you're going back to what Paul has been speaking against in the last two chapters. Should we just sin so that grace might increase? No. Absolutely not. We need to be serious about sin as Paul is racked by his own sin, but recognizes and gives us the truth, the good news that it can be overcome. So don't dismiss your sin. Instead, allow it to rack you with pain 
Allow it to be something that just captures your attention and calls you out. Don't just dismiss it. Don't just push it away. Let it drive you to your knees in confession to God about the fact that you've taken these steps that you know that you ought not with a commitment to leaning into His power to help you overcome the next time and the time after that. And then as you do that, eventually you'll get to the place where you're going to get ahead of it. So instead of just confessing it and saying, Lord, next time I'll do better, you get to the place where your mind and heart is so given over to Christ that you'll see it on its way and you'll defeat it before you ever fall in. And that's my prayer for you and that's my prayer for me. And that's the power that is available to us because our sin has been broken. It has been taken to the cross and the power has been overwhelmed through the blood of Jesus. And you can rise above. Are there influences on us of sin? Absolutely. But is there an influence of the new life of Christ? Yes, that's where Paul started because he didn't want us to miss it. And we must not miss it as we sum up this chapter and as we go from this place. Live in the power of the resurrection and find yourself able to find a victory even in the midst of the defeat that is otherwise aimed your direction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the power that you have given to us in the person of Jesus, giving us the opportunity to overcome, giving us the opportunity to defeat the sin nature that is within us. We can't push it aside completely. We can't be done with it absolutely, but we can live in such a way that demonstrates, that demonstrates that we're resting in the influence of the resurrection, in the influence of the new life that you have provided for us. Lord, I pray for my friends here, some who are struggling in this area of sin, some who are feeling defeated. Lord, I would just pray that, that a passage like this, though very theological, though very deep, though sometimes difficult to understand, that it would be something that the simplicity of what you are providing for us might be the thing that captures our hearts today, that we'd be able to walk away with the understanding that there is a sin that is going to come against us, but as we wrestle with it, we recognize that our hearts have been transformed, and as we wrestle with it, we can apply the blood of Jesus and the power of Christ in such a way that helps us over, to overcome in the moment. We're not victims. We're, we're not ones who are inevitably stuck under sin, but that we can overcome. So Lord, just give, give us that power. As we celebrate your goodness and what you're doing in us as a church, we also celebrate what you're doing in us as individuals, and we pray that we'd be walking even more closely with you, and we lift ourselves up in that direction to give you praise and glory and honor. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.